Now this evening, we come to the third uh, major division of the book of Malachi, which, as you will see on the board, extends from chapter 2, verse 17, to chapter 4, verse 3. I'm hoping this evening we may be able to complete this fourth subsection, but I'm not sure. Now, we will not say anything more about what we have already covered. It's, as I've often said, it's recorded, and if there's anyone here who's missed one of those, they can ask those responsible for the recording, and they will see to it that you're able to hear um, that recording. Now, this evening, we come then to this third division of the book of Malachi, beginning at the 17th verse of chapter 2. And um, we have entitled this one verse, um, verse 17 of chapter 2, we have entitled it, as you see on the board, The Weariness of the Lord. The Weariness of the Lord. It was a question to me as to whether to include this uh, um, last verse of chapter 2 in the previous division or with the third division. But as, in fact, it is a link between what has preceded and what is coming, and in particular is linked with um, the Lord's coming, I have placed it within the third division. But we have entitled it, The Weariness of the Lord. The Lord, if you read this, is weary. Let's read the verse. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, every one who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? The Lord is weary, he says, with the much talk of a people whose offerings are blemished, whose service is corrupt, and whose lives are compromised. It is one of those strange things that so often the people who offer the most blemished offerings and whose service is the most corrupt and whose lives are the most compromised are the people who talk the most as well. And there is no truer word than one of the Proverbs in Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 19 in the multitude of words, there wanteth not sin. This is the fourth category, really, in this book. Blemished offerings, corrupted service, compromised lives, arrogant lips. This is the kind of thing that the Lord is up against. People who, whose comments upon the Lord's way, is he delights in the evil one. He delights in the evil one. Uh, the very fact that he doesn't swiftly come forth in judgment to them is a sign that somehow or other the Lord's on the side of the evil, on the side of the wayward, forgetting that if the Lord was so swift to judge, they themselves would not stand long. 
And then again this other cry, where is the God of justice? It reveals a heart of unbelief. Where is he? Why is he silent? Why doesn't he act? Why don't we see him? And yet, you see, it would be so different if the people who were asking these questions were people whose offerings were pure and whose service was right and whose lives were not adulterated. But they, of all people, could hardly ask this question. It's an amazing thing that uh, they can speak like this. This kind of talk reveals stiff-necked pride and an evil heart of unbelief. And the Lord says, I'm weary with it. This kind of talk, this ingratitude, this arrogance, this kind of murmuring and groaning, it wearies me. So this whole section opens with the weariness of the Lord. He's weary with the people whose who are talking a lot, who are questioning a lot, and yet who's, who are not bothered about their own lives, who think that they can get away with hypocrisy, who think that they can just hide everything under a facade of piety, when in fact, uh, underneath, it's not right at all, but contrary to his purpose. That's the first section. The second section um, we have entitled, it's only one verse again, chapter 3 and verse 1. And we have entitled it, Christ's Coming Predicted. Now we shall dwell for some while upon this one verse, because it is one of the key verses of this little book, upon which everything revolves. In this verse, we have a very clear prediction of Christ's coming. Let's read it. Behold, I send my messenger to prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. This verse is, in fact, one of those verses in which the whole Old Testament is condensed. You go right back, right the way through the whole of the books of the Old Testament. There is a sense in which this little verse could be the motto of them all. Behold, I send my messenger to prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you delight, behold, he is coming. This can be written all over the Old Testament, right the way from the third chapter of Genesis, that awful fall when the promise was given to the seed, the seed of the woman who would in the end rise up and bruise the head of the serpent. Right the way through, all down through the ages, this little verse condenses the whole of the Old Testament. More directly, it's linked with this preceding verse of the last chapter. Where is the God of justice? The Lord says, behold, he is coming. The God of justice is coming. The Lord, the messenger of the covenant, he is coming, says the Lord. He answers the talk and the questions of unbelief of the people. The Lord, in fact, is on his way. He is going to come. 
We must also state that we have here a prediction of both Christ's first and second coming. See verse 2. Who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? You will look through, perhaps some of you will remember other scriptures in the New Testament which refer this to the second coming of the Lord Jesus, especially in Revelation um, chapter, um, I think it's seven, I'm not quite sure, six or seven. You will find that it's related to the coming of the Lord. Who can stand? when he appears. This is not only a prediction of the first coming, the first advent of Christ, but of the second advent also. And it is a promise of love. It is the very promise of love. God says to a people who are gainsaying and contradicting him, he says to them, he is coming. This is the promise of my love. The one who's going to come, who's going to change everything. The one who's going to separate the dross. From, from the valuable. The one who's going to really bring in the kingdom of God. He is coming, says the Lord. Here is the promise of love. And the Lord did come. Perhaps four centuries of silence were to elapse between this time and when the Lord Jesus appeared. But he came. And when he came, there was a sense in which the kingdom of God came. And you know, it is true of us too. He is coming. We can say again, the Lord's coming. And uh, when the Lord comes the second time, the kingdom of God is not only going to come inwardly, intangibly, invisibly, but the kingdom of God is going to come with outward power and pomp and majesty. So we have a tremendous future to look forward to. And here, in this one verse, we have both the Lord's first coming already fulfilled and his second coming as yet unfulfilled to look forward to. Then I want you to note the little um, the, uh, phrase in this verse 1, whom ye seek, the Lord whom ye seek. And again the phrase, the messenger of the covenant, whom ye, in whom ye delight. You will notice that the English Revised Version, the Authorized Version, and the Revised Standard Version use the word delight, in whom you delight. The American Standard Version says, whom ye desire. Now this is interesting because, you see, this, um, this prophecy, this prediction, is to a people who, as we have already seen, have compromised lives, whose service is corrupt, whose offerings are blemished. And yet the Lord speaks of them as seeking the Lord, the Lord whom they're seeking, and the messenger of the covenant in whom they delight. Which is evidently, it seems, uh, evidence for a widespread expectancy of the coming Messiah. Evidently in Malachi's day, in spite of, of all the breakdown and failure and hypocrisy, that there was formalism as well as worldliness, there was a widespread expectancy that the Messiah was coming. And I am quite sure that it was due to Zechariah's ministry. You remember Zechariah's ministry almost 
wholly centered, not so much in the temple as in the Christ. And he was the one who, as it were, more fully than any other prophet, had spoken of the coming Messiah and his work and his ministry and his kingdom and reign and glory, the glory that would follow. So evidently, as a result of Zechariah's ministry, there was a widespread expectancy concerning the coming Christ. And yet, I think one cannot but connect these phrases with Malachi 3, verse 16. That little group, that small number, who not only understood that the Messiah was coming, but sought for him with a pure heart, from pure motives, and delighted in him. And it's a beautiful word, this word delight. They, sure, them it could be truly and genuinely said, these that feared him and spake oft one to another and thought upon his name, surely these, they delighted in the coming messenger of the covenant. They saw a profaned covenant on every side. They saw a despised name. But for them, they delighted in the coming Messiah. He was going to be the messenger of the covenant. He was going to stop all this profanity, all this abuse, all this, this making secular of something intrinsically holy. He was going to stop it. And uh, they delighted in him. I believe that they must have seen in him the very vindication of their own lives. They must have seen in the coming Christ, as it were, the answer to their own longings and hopes, the answer to their own difficulties and problems. Yes, I'm quite sure of that. At Christ's first coming, this little group who sought, sought him and delighted in him are represented by that little band of people, so few and so in insignificant, Simeon the aged Simeon, and the even more aged Anna. And Zacharias and Elizabeth, the father and mother of John the Baptist, and John himself, and those godly shepherds, simple, so simple, in probably in many ways illiterate men, but, but men of genuine faith, and spiritual discernment. Here there was this small group, Joseph and Mary and others, who fought for the coming Christ and who delighted in him. In the Lord's coming, they were re they're represented by this little insignificant handful of people. <coughs> to all such whether at the coming of the Lord or during those 400 years from Malachi's time right the way through or now as we wait for the Lord, to all such there was no other real and lasting answer to all the defeat and failure and breakdown both within their own lives and around them but the coming Christ. And I believe that it will be so with us also. Have you ever noticed how strangely the Lord allows nothing to come to perfection 
on this earth. It's a strange thing that though the Lord, as it were, stands for something perfect and something complete, and all the time calls us to rebuilding, rebuilding, reconstruction, recovery, renewal, yet once he's got the recovery, once he's got the renewal, he seems to allow it, allow it, to be broken up by his great adversary. Now why? Why is it that all through church history, every time you've got a great move of God's Holy Spirit, within, within a generation the Lord allows the thing to be hammered by the evil one and broken up? Why is it, for instance, in our own day, of all the countries, all the nations, all the areas of the world in which God has acted in our own mid-twentieth century, I suppose China stands out the most. And yet, look what God does. No sooner is there a true functioning church in every city in the mainland of China, no sooner are there 1,000 truly commissioned missionaries, Chinese missionaries, sent out by the Lord from his body in China to the farthermost parts of China, it had never happened in, in its history before, to Tibet, to Turkestan, to Mongolia, to Manchuria, to Korea, to Inner Mongolia, to Western China, and so on. No sooner is it done than the Lord allows this terrible scourge of communism to sweep down on the whole thing and seemingly obliterate it. So that all the leaders have either been killed or are in prison. So that all the meetings are broken up publicly. Why should we say, why does the Lord allow it? Why? It is so interesting, again and again, we could, we could give you examples of this, but it just seems as if the Lord will allow nothing to come to its complete perfection on earth. As if the Lord wants us to realize that all the values are spiritual and eternal and heavenly. And in fact, the real values of whatever God does in any generation are permanent. What God got in the Reformation, he has now. We've lost it down here, but he's got it. It's in the city. And what God got through the Quakers is in the city. It's lost down here. It's in the city. What God has got through the Wesleyans, he's got in the city. It's lost down here. What he got in the Moravians is in the city. It's lost down here. What he got in the Brethren movement, what he's got in the Pentecostal movement, and so on and so forth. It's all gone up. As if God will not allow us to have an abiding city down here. You remember Hebrews chapter 13 verse 14. Here have we no abiding city, but we seek for the city which is to come. God, it seems, stands against any construction of an abiding city down here. And how often in church history, men would have turned what God the Holy Spirit did into an abiding city. They tried to. They tried to. And so we have all the great major denominations which are, but as it were, an abiding something. But the heavenly values have gone into heaven. And they're in the city, which is going to come out of heaven at the end. Well, is this so? 
Certainly it was for these people in Malachi's day. There was the temple reconstructed. There were the services functioning. The offerings were there. All the service was there. The priests were functioning. The Levites were functioning. Everything was and yet. There was to be more and more and more imperfection. More and more breakdown. More and more failure. Until he who was called the messenger of the covenant would suddenly appear. Oh, the values are there. And the values have gone into something eternal. One or two scriptures just let's look at. 2 Timothy. Let's just see. Because you know at the end of this age, we're looking for some real recovery of God's thought and mind concerning his body, his church. And yet, we must also remember that in the midst of all the recovery that we believe the Lord uh, will bring about there will also be another side 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 1 to 9 now I'm not going to read it all but understand this that in the last days there will come times of stress for men will be lovers of self and so on now it goes on and tells us just what it's like it goes right on to verse 8 as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses so these men also opposed the truth men of corrupt mind and counterfeit faith but they will not get very far for their folly will be plain to all as was that of those two men and then again 2 Thessalonians 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 Verse 1 to 12. Now again, we can't read all this, but I'll read just a little. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, now assembling to meet him, we beg you, brethren, not to be quickly shaken in mind or excited, either by spirit or by word or by letter, purporting to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exhorts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God. He takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. And so it will go on. Verse 9. The coming of the lawless one by the activity of Satan will be with all power and with pretended signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are to perish because they refuse to love the truth and so to be saved. Therefore God sends upon them a strong delusion to make them believe what is false. Matthew 12, 24. Matthew 24. Verse 12. Because wickedness, and because wickedness is multiplied, most men's love will grow cold. That speaks of breakdown and failure amongst God's children. Because wickedness is multiplied, most men's love will grow cold. Verse 22, And if those days had not been shortened, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days shall, will be shortened. Now, this all to me speaks of of, um, of much breakdown 
and much departure and uh, much that we would say is contrary to the Lord's mind and will. But you see, it's just in the midst of all that breakdown and failure that the Lord's going to come. And this is where we're told, here, suddenly the Lord will come. Now that's something I believe that we can encourage our hearts with. We can seek the Lord and we can delight in him, in his coming. Look for it, because for us it means everything. It's going to be the lasting and final answer to all this breakdown and this amazing tendency to degeneration that is in even saved people. This tendency somehow or other just to, to slide away and fall back. The only one who can stop it is the Lord himself from heaven. Then I want you also to mark here in Malachi this wonderful title of Christ, so striking, the messenger or the angel of the covenant. And this is obviously related to the phrase which is used a lot in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord, which is a mysterious uh, term, sometimes used of an actual angel, and sometimes used of Christ himself in his, um, in his, uh, uh, how shall we say, in his showings of himself before he was actually born at Bethlehem in the Old Testament. If you look at Exodus chapter 23, you will have an instance of this. Chapter 23, verse 20. Listen, behold, I send an angel before thee to keep thee by the way and to bring thee into the place which I have prepared. Take ye heed before him and hearken unto his voice. Provoke him not, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if thou shalt indeed hearken unto his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy unto thine enemies and adversary unto thine adversaries. For mine angels shall go before thee and bring thee in unto the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Canaanite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, and I will cut them off. Um, this is one of the references to the angel of the Lord that is generally understood to be a reference to Christ in his leadership of his people. And then in Isaiah, you have an even more striking um, reference. Isaiah 63, verse 9. Isaiah 63, verse 9. And this is most interesting. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. Uh, by the way, just will you look at the last phrase of the previous verse, so he was their saviour. So he was their saviour. In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them, and he bare them and carried them all the days of old. So here, you see, you have the angel of his presence. In Exodus you have the angel of the Lord, this mysterious term which sometimes denotes an actual angel and sometimes the presence of Christ. And here in Malachi, we have the angel of the covenant. 
the angel or messenger of the covenant, in spite of their abusing the former covenant and so much that was sinful and contrary amongst them to God's will, he would come who was the angel of the covenant, the one who would ratify the new and eternal covenant with his own blood. And don't you think here that we have the evidence of sovereign love transcending everything? Surely it is a most wonderful thing through grace to be in such a relationship with God that the Lord Jesus is called the messenger or the angel of the covenant who has actually shed his own blood to seal this covenant in which we all stand if we are saved through his grace. It's a tremendous relationship to be in. But it's more than that, it is a fearful relationship to be in. For who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? It's a tremendous thing to be saved because it is evidence of sovereign love that he, the Lord Jesus himself, is the angel of the covenant and has shed his own blood that we might be Saved. And then again, I want you to note this other little phrase in this verse, shall suddenly come to his temple. The Hebrew here is unexpectedly. Shall unexpectedly come to his temple. The Lord whom you seek will unexpectedly come to his temple. Oh, with what abrupt suddenness did the Lord finally after so many, many centuries, appear in his temple. The promise has been given all down through the ages by various prophets. Finally, it was put into the words of Malachi, and the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come, shall unexpectedly come to his temple. But when the Lord did suddenly come to his temple, with what abrupt suddenness it was. You turn to Luke chapter 2. And suddenly, in almost, almost in a, a, a way that could be easily overlooked, you find the Lord is in his temple. Luke chapter 2, verse 22 to 38. I'll leave you to read all that. But you see, just the first verse, and when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Um, Verse 24, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law. And then you've got verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And inspired by the Spirit, he came into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord. Now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared in the presence of all peoples. I think that is tremendous. Where was the high priest? 
Where were all the other priests? Where were the Pharisees? Where were, this, where were the Sadducees? Where were the Essenes? Where were all these great religious parties? They all overlooked it. Suddenly, unexpectedly, abruptly, the Lord appeared in his temple. And one old man recognized that this was the fulfillment of prophecy. The Lord's Christ had suddenly appeared in the temple. Well, I think that's tremendous. And then again, if you look uh, a little later on, in the same chapter, 41, you've got another abrupt appearing in the temple. It's rather interesting they're all brought together. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returned, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. Now, you know where it was. He was in the temple. And verse 48... And when they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been looking for you anxiously. And he said to them, How is it that you sought me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Twelve years elapsed, and suddenly the Lord whom they sought was in his temple. Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And you know, there's another wonderful reference to it that was connected in my mind with this sudden appearing of the Lord. John chapter 2 and verse 13. I must say sometimes in my heart, I wish I could see this scene. When suddenly it says, verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers at their business. Making a whip of cords, he drove them all with the sheep and the oxen out of the temple and he poured out the coins the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. You shall not make my father's house a house of trade. There again the Lord was suddenly found in his temple. Three appearances of the Lord suddenly, abruptly, unexpectedly in his temple. And I don't think it's wrong for us to see in this prophecy a far greater fulfillment when suddenly the Lord will appear amongst his own again. When the Lord will suddenly be found in his temple. Only this time it's not the shadow but the eternal. And that temple that God is, has been building through the ages, not made with hands, but made with living stones taken out of Christ, built into him, suddenly the Lord's going to be found amongst them. Now, is that so? Is that so? Can we look for such a fulfillment? Well, again, take your, your Bible... Look at Matthew 24. I don't know whether you've ever noticed these things. They are, in act, they are the actual waiting, things that are waiting for a fulfillment. Matthew 24, verse 30. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. 
and he shall send forth his angels with the great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Isn't that marvellous? Suddenly, this great trumpet sounding, and this gathering of all true believers to the Lord, and the Lord will appear amongst them. It won't be that we shall suddenly look and say, oh my word, the Lord. If you and I are truly saved, we shall be with him. And suddenly, in a moment of time, the Lord will be in the midst of us all. It won't be down here. It'll be somewhere else. I don't know where. I don't know how it's going to happen. But suddenly, it's going to happen. All right, someone says, I'm not quite with you. All right, 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. Or shall we read verse 50? Now I say, now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery, we all shall not sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. How long does it take for an eye to twinkle? Ever thought about it? In the twinkling of an eye. Well, an eye just moves and you see a twinkle. It's come and it's gone. And uh, God says that in the twinkling of an eye it will happen unexpectedly. We shall all just be gone. Praise the Lord. What a day it will be when we're all with the Lord. Suddenly, in the twinkling of an eye, saved by grace. The Lord appearing suddenly in the midst of his own. No more sin, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain, no more disease, no more death. In the twinkling of an eye, we shall all be changed. I think that's the most wonderful part of it. Altogether, we shall all be changed. It's not that we'll just be there. How awful it would be. Just to be suddenly taken into the presence of the Lord. If it wasn't that in the twinkling of an eye, we shall be changed as well. Something will happen, and we shall be changed, and corruptible bodies will put on incorruptible bodies, and mortality will put on immortality, and we shall be forever with the Lord. Doesn't, isn't this what it means, a greater fulfillment? Suddenly the Lord whom you seek shall come to his temple. Oh, the day that we wait for. All right, I think now I'm persuading you. 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4, verse 16 and 17. Listen to this. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we that are alive, that are left, shall together with them be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Ever with the Lord. There you are. Suddenly the Lord appearing in his temple. The living stones have been built. The work's been finished, the scaffolding has been taken away, and suddenly the Lord appears in his body forever. I say that's tremendous. All right, then, let's turn on to 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verse 7. 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verse 7, And to you that are afflicted, rest with us. At the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with the angels of his power in flaming fire. And so on, verse 8 and 9. 
Now look at this. When he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at in all them that believed. Well, I think that's going to be a marvelous day when people are going to marvel at the Lord in us. Now what does it mean? That when the Lord comes, we shall be with him and we shall be the expression of his glory. And people will marvel at him in us. They won't say, my word, look at Lance. Or look at that person there. They'll say, oh my word, just look at Jesus. Look at the Lord Christ. Look at him in that one. Isn't that beautiful? You see, they will marvel at the Lord in us. Oh, I think this again, is, he shall be glorified in his saints. I think that's marvellous. The Lord glorified in us and then marvelled at in us. Now, this is what it means, you know, when I think of Solomon's temple with all its glory, how people marvelled at it. How their mouths must have dropped open in those days when they went around it and saw all the cedarwood overlaid with gold and the wonderful hangings and the intricate work, the lily work, and all the carving and the engraving and everything else. My name is how marvellous. As, as David said in Psalm 27, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And this is just what it will be in that day when the whole world will see Christ glorified in his own and will marvel at him in his body. Well, now, I, I think I've given you enough scriptures, but I'm going to give you one more uh, in Revelation chapter 11. And this is a very interesting chapter because I'm sure it has a lot to do with Malachi. But we shall look at it in another evening when we when we study this question of the coming of Elijah. But if you look at chapter 11, Revelation chapter 11, I want you to look at verse 17 to 19. Listen. We give thee thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who art and who wast, because thou hast taken thy great power and didst reign, and the nations were gross, and thy wrath came, and the time of the dead to be judged, and the time to give their reward to thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and to them that fear thy name, the small and the great, and to destroy them that destroy the earth. And there was opened the temple of God that is in heaven. And there was seen in his temple the ark of his covenant, that is the presence of the Lord, the angel of the covenant the ark of his covenant and there followed lightnings and voices and thunders and an earthquake and a great hail well of course the book of revelation is full of imagery and symbol but there you've got it you see you've got the whole thing the coming of the lord and when the lord comes the temple of god is opened and you look into it and you see the ark of the covenant which is the symbol of the presence of god in the midst of his people now look at verse 1. And there was given me a reed like unto a rod, and one said, Rise and measure the temple of God, and the altar, and them that worship therein. So it's all about the temple. Now look at verse 3. I will give unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and three score days. Now I know that, so we'll have to look at that a little later when we talk about Elijah. But there it is, two witnesses before that great last final phase of this age 
comes to pass. And verse 15, look at that. Seventh angel sounded, there followed great voices in heaven, and they said, The kingdom of the world is become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Well, the whole of that chapter, I believe, uh, it refers in many ways back to the book of Malachi. Well, there you are. I think this is tremendous. And it's just here that we see the urgency for the recovery and the rebuilding of God's spiritual house, albeit surrounded by breakdown and failure. Maybe we shall see a tremendous amount of breakdown and failure. We will in these last days. But that is no excuse for getting on with the work of recovery and rebuilding. We must look to the Lord to recover his spiritual temple, to build together the living stones so that the top stone can be put into its place. Oh, we, we must look for it. And here we've got this tremendous promise that suddenly the Lord is going to appear. Well, we must go on. This, I believe, is one of the great focal points of the battle at the end of this age, to stop that spiritual temple from being completed. That's all. By every means, foul and fair, in the devil's capacity and ability, somehow or other to hinder God. And that's why, if we know anything about being built together, that's why we're in such a battle. Now, we don't know how long it will be before the Lord comes. When this, uh, when this uh, prophecy, when this prediction was made, I can imagine some people, some of those dear faithful ones, probably in their heart, thought, and the Lord in your seat will suddenly come. And I, perhaps they thought it won't be long. Just a few years. Perhaps not even as long as that. And then the Lord will come and he'll put everything right. The messenger of the covenant's going to come. In fact, four centuries passed away. We don't know. And in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, we are told quite clearly that no one knows the day or the hour. I think it's just as well we, we read that. I'll read it to you. Verse 36, chapter 24 of Matthew. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. No one knows the moment at which the Lord is suddenly going to appear in his temple. No one. Not even the Son. Only the Father. And yet, and yet, we can spiritually discern the general period in which we're living. 400 years elapsed between this prediction of Christ's first coming, yet there were those who, although they did not know the day or the hour, were yet clear that in their lifetime the Lord was coming. And here you've got Simeon, to whom it had been revealed that before he died, he would see the Lord's Christ. Here you've got Anna, and she knew that the Lord was coming. Here you've got three Gentile wise men and somehow it's been shown to them that the Lord's Christ has come. They're watching the heavens for a certain star because they know. And you know, although we don't know the day or the hour, we can tell 
the general time, we ought to be alive in our spirit to the times in which we live and, uh, and waiting for the coming of the Lord. And I think also in this one verse we have the prediction of Christ's forerunner and herald. Um, in the first part of verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger to prepare the way before me. This is not to be confused with the messenger of the covenant. This forerunner is obviously connected with the voice of Isaiah 40. If you look, you will see that it harks back to that. Where it says in verse 3, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And so on. Um, it's obviously this, um, this prediction it refers back to this earlier prophecy of Isaiah. And also it is just as clear that it is connected with Elijah. In verse 5 of chapter 4, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. So this, um, this promise, this prediction of a forerunner of uh, Christ, it goes back to Isaiah and is related to Elijah. Back to this voice that's going to cry in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. And uh, also connected with Elijah, who is evidently, we're told, going to come. Now, again, would you take your um, New Testament and look at Matthew 11. Matthew 11, verse 13. For all the prophets in the law prophesied unto John, and if ye are willing to receive it, this is Elijah that is to come. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus said, if you will have it, this is Elijah, John the Baptist. Now, um, let's look at Mark 9. Mark chapter 9. Mark 9, uh, verse 11. And we read this. And they asked him, saying, How is it that the scribes say that Elijah must first come? And he said unto them, Elijah indeed cometh first, and restoreth all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be set at naught? But I say unto you that Elijah is come, and they have also done unto him whatsoever they would, even as it is written of him. Now here you've got two things. It's as if the Lord suggests that Elijah is going to come. And then he suggests that Elijah has already come. And then he speaks of the Son of Man suffering, as if to say, you know what is said of the, of the Messiah, that when he comes, he's going to come in great glory and majesty, but I say he's going to suffer. As if he's uh, saying, there are two things, you see, there are two things here. There are two parts of this coming. Um, let's look at another scripture, just if this will make it clearer. Luke 1, verse 13 this is what Zacharias said. Thou shalt call his name John. The last part of verse 13. And then um, verse 17. And he shall go before his face, that's the Lord the, your God, 
in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to walk in the wisdom of the just. That's a direct reference to Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. To turn the fathers uh, to the children, children to the fathers. Now, it's, uh, it is very interesting because uh, we're told that John the Baptist will go before the Lord in the spirit of, uh, and power of Elijah. Now, why then, in John chapter 1, have we got this strange enigma? Listen, John chapter 1, verse 19. Um, I won't read it all, but again, you've got all these priests and others coming, and they say, Who art thou? And he confessed and denied not. And he confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, what then? Art thou Elijah? And he said, I am not. Art thou the prophet? They're trying to pin him right down, see, if you won't say I'm Elijah, then are you the prophet that's going to come before the Messiah? And he said, no. They said, therefore, under who art thou? That we, may, um, uh, that we may give an answer to them that sent us. And this is very interesting because it seems quite clear that John the Baptist, though he knew he must have known of his own father's prayer over him to go before the Lord, face of the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah, a direct reference back to this prophet in Malachi chapter 4. And yet it's clear that John did not want them to understand that he was the herald of the end. So it is clear here, you see, that in, you had this strange, remarkable, mysterious sense in which this prophecy has been already fulfilled. Behold, I send my messenger to prepare the way before me, and yet in which, in another sense, it still remains unfulfilled. And um, before the end comes, we have got to look for such a forerunner. Now look at Malachi chapter 4, and verse 5. I want you to look at this phrase, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. That is a reference, of course, to the great day of God, which is not yet dawn. So you see, here we have a most remarkable thing. In one sense, again, just as the Christ's coming has been, this prediction of his coming has been partly fulfilled and rightly fulfilled, yet it remains unfulfilled. This prediction of his suddenly coming to his temple has been fulfilled and yet it remains unfulfilled. This prediction of the forerunner and herald has been partly fulfilled and yet it remains unfulfilled. I say, this is very, very wonderful. And the work of this forerunner, whether it's a person, whether it's a couple, a two, a pair, or whether it's a company, the work of this forerunner at the end of this age is to prepare a people for the Lord and a way for his coming. So we must look, if we are in such a day, for such a ministry in the end that will be raised, that will make a way for the coming of the Lord. Now the second uh, little section here, the third section, from verse 2 to verse 5, the Lord's purifying work. Now you see here, who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Now is this purifying work 
merely to follow the Lord's coming? Well, you see from verse 2, it would seem that it follows the Lord's coming. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can, who can uh, stand when he appears? It seems as if this purifying work is to follow the Lord's coming. Certainly it will do so when he, as he did in his first coming, finally sorts out the chaff from the wheat, and the, the tares from the wheat, and the chaff from the grain, and the goats from the sheep, and the wood and the hay and the stubble from the gold and the silver and the precious stone. The Lord's going to do it. There's going to be a lot of shocks. Believe me, a lot of shocks when the Lord comes. Many people who thought they'd be there won't be there. And I do believe there'll be some people who hardly thought they would be there who will be there. It will be true. Some people who thought they were sheep will prove to be goats. Some who thought they were weak will prove to be tares. It will be a terrible sorting out work when the Lord comes. And we shall find that some people who have been deceitful, who have been hypocritical, who uh, in many ways have not made their calling and election sure, are suddenly found without. Finally without. Oh, you can't draw hard and fast lines on this. And you can't live in sin. And you can't play around with the Lord. This day of his coming, who, who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? No, I say, unless you and I are washed in the blood of the Lamb, unless we've got a sure and certain foundation upon which we're standing, unless we know that there's no sin in our lives which we're playing with, well, that day will be a terrible day because that will be the day when the Lord will sort out finally. And on one side, this, and on the other side, that. And it refers to this, definitely. And yet, this purifying work characterized by John the was characterized by John the Baptist's ministry as well, wasn't it? If you've only got to read in Luke chapter 3 and verse 1 to 17 the way he sorted out people. You brood of vipers, he said. Who told you to flee from the wrath to come? You just read some of them. That message, that sample message of John the Baptist, his was a purifying ministry. He preached a baptism of repentance. That's what he, in other words, sort yourselves out. Sort yourselves out. Get right with God. See that you're absolutely repentant of all that is evil and wrong. Be ready for the coming of the Lord. Yes, his ministry was characterized by this purifying work. And yet I think it is also true that this characterizes the Lord's purifying work with his own in preparation for that day. Now listen very carefully to me. And I'm not trying to be funny. For we can either have it now or wait for it. It's as simple as that. We can either have the purifying, refining work of God now or wait for it. But sooner or later it will come. Sooner or later. That purifying work of God will come. I'm not preaching a purgatory. But I am preaching something which is utterly scriptural. That there will come a fire sooner or later 
which will try every man's work as to what it is. And you can have that now, or you can wait for it. It's so simple. Oh, I wonder whether I've carried you with me well. Look at 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians 3. Um, you know this so well, don't you? Verse 11, For our other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. But if any man buildeth on the foundation gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, stubble, each man's work shall be made manifest for the day, that day shall declare it. Because it is revealed in fire, and the fire itself shall prove each man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work shall abide which he built there, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Now look at Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. I'll only leave this passage with you if you want to note it down and read it. To verse 11. What does it say? Every son whom the Lord loveth, he scourgeth. He chasteneth. Now then, what is this? One speaks of something to come. The other speaks of something the Lord will do now. Why? Listen. It's so clear. All chastening, verse 11, all chastening seemeth for the present to be not joyous but grievous. Yet afterward it yieldeth peaceable fruit unto them that have ex been exercised thereby even the fruit of righteousness. So you can have this sorting out, purifying work now, or you can wait for it, but it will come. Uh, look at 1 Peter 1 7. 1 Peter 1 7. Here it is again, that the proof or trial of your faith, being more precious than gold that perishes, though it is proved by fire, may be found unto praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's also interesting in connection with this just to look at three other scriptures. Titus chapter 2, verse 13. This seems to sum up this purifying work. Listen to this. Looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of the great God and our Saviour Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a people for his own possession. Zealous of good works. Isn't that interesting? Purify. And then again, 1 John... 1 John, chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, now are we children of God, not yet made manifest what we shall be. We know that if he shall be manifested, we shall be like him, for we shall see him even as he is. And everyone that hath this hope set on him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. There. Purifieth himself. If you look to the Lord like that, you behold him and you look for his appearing, it's a purifying thing. You'll be purified. Uh, just wait. Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. Verse 7. The last part of this verse. And his wife hath made herself ready. Hath made herself ready. In other words, she didn't wait, but she got herself ready. 
It's interesting. And you've got the same thought in Daniel and chapter 12, verse 9 and 10, where we're told in exactly the same way. It's very interesting because it seems to be connected. In exactly the same way, we're told, Go thy way, Daniel, the work for the words are shut up and sealed till the time of the end. Now listen, many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand. That's very interesting, isn't it? Uh, this phrase, shall purify themselves, make themselves white, occurs at least one other time in Daniel, in connection with the same idea. Now, I think we ought to note in verses 3 to 5 in Malachi that the Lord begins this work of purifying or judgment with the sons of Levi. Verse 3, he will sit, uh, he will purify the sons of Levi. Verse 3. And then it gradually moves right out to the circumference of the nation. From the sons of Levi, he works out. Now, what is this? Well, it's very interesting. This work must begin at God's house. 1 Peter, chapter 4, verse 17. You read it. For judgment must begin at the house of God. We st God starts with the sons of Levi in the house and works out. Then again, would you see that three things are dealt with in this purifying work? Blemished offerings, verse 3. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold till they present right offerings to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord. This refining work produces pure offering. And then it deals with corrupted service, verse 3. Again, he will purify the sons of Levi. Corrupted service dealt with by this work of the Lord. And compromised lives, verse 5. Look what he's going to do with these compromised lives. He's going to be a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against false swearers, against oppressors, and so on and so on. All this that can be summed up as compromise is going to be dealt with by this work of the Lord. Now we're going to close, but there are three illustrations that are used in these verses from three to five. And I think that in the end, they're the thing that will help us more than anything else. In verse two, we have the refiner's fire. In verse two, we have the fuller's soap. And in verse 3, we have the refiner of silver and gold. Now, very briefly, the refiner's fire. What is the refiner's fire? This was a furnace. A furnace consisting of a pottery, usually of a pottery crucible, in an oven, to which a draft was forced through clay pipes by bellows that were hand-operated at the end. So these big bellows were pushed up and down so the air was forced through and so the coal was kept aflame uh, and whatever metal or whatever it was that was in the crucible, in the pottery, crucible gradually was um, melted down. It was tested. It was the ancient method of melting, testing and removing impurities from metals as well as for casting various tools. 
Now we have two things illustrated by the refiner's fire. The first is testing to see what kind of stuff it is. And not only testing, but the removal of dross, of impurities. And the second thing illustrated by the refiner's fire is the production of something valuable by heat and pressure. Now what does this speak of? Now mark you, here it is not, the Lord is not told, we're not told the Lord is like the refiner. We're told the Lord is like the refiner's fire. In other words, the Lord is the purifying agent. He's the furnace. That's a tremendous thing, isn't it? When you and I are found in Christ, if we've been business and we'll let him, and it's, and it, it's a question of will, if we let him, the Lord will act like a furnace. And he will test everything. And he will, he will, he will, as it will, get rid, he will remove all the impurities and the gloss from us. He will test it as to whether it's the real thing. And he will get rid of everything's alien to it. And he does it by fire. What does it speak of? It, well, it means the Lord uses fiery trials in the crucible. And sometimes that's not a strong enough word in the furnace of experience. In order to separate what is of Christ from what is not. And until you and I go into such a furnace, we just don't know it. We have no idea what the Lord is doing. And it's a test by fire for what comes true is holy of God and is formed by heat and pressure. I don't know if any of you are in a crucible of experience tonight or in a furnace of experience tonight. But you can be sure of one thing. Something's being got rid of and something's being formed. The very heat and pressure is forming something. And God is doing something. That's one thing. He's like a refiner's fire. Do you know the Lord like a furnace? Well, you'll thank God in the end if you do. If you know the Lord in this way, you'll thank the Lord in the end for it. When that day comes, all this work will be behind you. All behind. There's nothing the fire then can do. And then again, it's like full of soap. When I was a lad and first say, I always used to think this was almost like an advertisement. Um, he is like full of soap. I couldn't, I never ever could understand what fuller was. And um, it is really interesting. It refers, now listen carefully, the fuller soap refers to the art of cleansing, whitening, and bleaching cloth. Before cloth could be dyed in the ancient world, it had to be cleansed of its natural oil and gum. And dressed. Now you know what we mean by dressed, just in case there's anyone who's ignorant. You know a material's got a dressing in it. It's thickened. After it's been all the natural oils and gums have been got out the crude ones, then it's dressed. It has a dressing inside of it. And this is the work in the old days of the fuller. In some cases the material had to be bleached as well. Now a large part and general part of the fuller's work was the cleaning and whitening of garments. In other words, he was very much like a modern, uh, like a modern cleaner. 
rather like an ancient Merlin's on the bridge. You know, they kind of took in people's clothes and they were cleaned by them and they were purified. Uh, they were bleached sometimes if, if they were white clothes for festival occasions. This was generally done by treading on the garments in shallow water on a flat stone. I might say that sometimes I think that's what they do in modern cleaners. But it was done by garments being put on a flat stone in shallow water and the fuller trampled on them all the time in the water. That's all he did. He just went up and down. And that's why the Hebrew word that we have translated here as fuller is really trampler. He's just a trampler. That's the word, trampler. He trampled on it. But don't. And the fuller soap was an alkali which was added to the water to clean and bleach the cloth or remove the oil or natural gums that were in it. Now, two, the first is the removal of natural substances and dirt. And the second is the production of something useful and valuable. What does it speak of? Well, we, here we see the Lord as the purifying agent. Do you know the Lord as the purifying agent? Do you know him in your life as the one who's bleaching you all the time? Who's getting rid of all those natural resources and that natural life and that natural energy which obtrudes into the presence of God, into the things of God? Do you know him? Do you know his trampling work, his breaking work, so he breaks you of natural strength and natural resources? Do you know him like that? This is what this purifying work is. If you want to be prepared for the coming of the Lord, then you've got to be prepared for him to act like full of soap in your life. Doing this tremendous work and producing something of eternal value and usefulness. And the third little illustration, the finest fire or furnace, full of soap, but the last is the refiner himself. The refiner of gold, silver and gold. He was a skilled craftsman whose sole job was to reduce silver and gold, often with much impurity, to liquid form and remove the gloss. And do you know how he did it? In the ancient world, and indeed still in the East, he does it by sitting in front of the crucible, over the fire, regulating the heat, personally, so that it is neither too much nor too little. He knows exactly the strength of the silver and the gold, and he knows just how far he can go with it, just how long and how great a heat it must have. And he watches it. He never takes his eye off its off its. Uh, when it's liquid, he never takes his eye off until he can see his, himself clearly reflected. When he can see all the, 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 the froth, the, 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 the dross on the top, burnt out, purged out, when he can see himself clearly, he removes it. The process is over. And what do we see here? 
Well, we see the personal care and skill of the Lord over us in this refining work. The Lord doesn't leave this to chance. He doesn't leave this to circumstance. He doesn't leave this to some angel. The Lord has, is himself the refiner. And if it may comfort you, in this refining work, he waits till he can see himself in us. That's his objective. <clears throat> and he knows just how far to go with each one of us. He knows just the strength of what is of Christ in each one of us. He knows just how far um, it can be stretched, as it were. He knows the heat that we can bear. And he knows, in fact, just how long it's going to take him before he can see himself in us. So you see, when you're in the pressure, when you know the pressure and the affliction, you can be quite sure there's someone who knows just what he's doing. And he's, he's regulating it. He's watching over it. And uh, he works till we're conformed to his image. And that's from glory to glory, I was going to say, from crucible to crucible. Um, it's like that. The Lord does something, and there's a bit more of Christ comes. And then it's got to go through the fire again. And so back we go in, again, into the crucible of experience. It's fired, it's tested, until the impurity's out. And then there's a period of enlargement, but sooner or later we shall go back into the crucible Again, this is the refining work. So, what do we see in this section? We see not only the coming of the Lord, but we see this, his purifying work. And you know, we see the Lord trying, refining, purifying, until he has not only removed the dross, but produced something eternal and gloriously beautiful. Gloriously. And incorruptible. Oh, I can only think of Revelation chapter 3 and verse 8 where it says, I counsel thee to buy of me gold refined in the fire and garments, white garments, that you may cover your nakedness. This is Malachi, the book of Malachi. And you know, uh, I think you and I ought to fear in one way if uh, we're not prepared for this refining work of the Lord. I believe that Protestants, on the whole, in their reaction against purgatory, which is right, have gone too far in the other direction. And sometimes they, they preach this, this easy ticket to heaven, as if people can get in anyhow, any way, any price. No, that's not so. There is a work of fire, and if you and I want it now, we can have it now. And if we want to wait for it, we can wait for it. But that fire will come, and through it we must all pass, until on the other side there's only what is holy and pure of Christ. May the Lord help us.